0: Senator Kevin Kramer of North Dakota. Well, now I can finally have a good excuse for not having to do the face-to-face interviews as much anymore because of the coronavirus. So, huh, Senator? Senator? That's
1: right, if I start coughing, then
0: you don't have to worry. So let's talk about that to to kick it off. We're gonna talk about a number of things here with US Senator Kevin Kramer, but one of the things I did wanna talk about is the coronavirus, Uh, mostly from kind of the economic point of view, but also from mostly the social engineering point of view too. There's a couple different angles there, but talk to me a little bit about the economic side because it's really impacting the economy
1: well it's an interesting point because it's it's certainly certainly disrupting the markets and oftentimes the markets are a precursor to the economy some sometimes markets respond to you know fundamental economic stimulus in this case i think the markets are well ahead of of the economy but there's no question that that uh, the economy is struggling and it's it's obvious that it's going to struggle when you have a disruption in trade you have a disruption uh, in in supply chains and value chains, and uh, and then of course add to that the emotion that follows, and and you have you know you have pullbacks and in investments and things, but on the energy sector, Jason, it really gets very pragmatic. It it one thing about oil and gas in particular. I mean, oil is a commodity. It is a that and while there are certainly ways to to trick the you know the markets if you will there there's hedging and there are there are ways that that maybe the market price can reflect something other than the fundamentals at the end of the day it's still a buyer seller commodity and as a result of the coronavirus as we know there's been a tremendous uh, shift in demand demand is down I mean when when there's 30% fewer people flying on airplanes, and and you have travel bans, and you you have uh, a lot of events being canceled, and uh, you know what, 25% of, of travel either comes from or goes through China, you know, clearly that demand is going to be down. And in addition to that, we're already having a little bit of a demand challenge because, of course, you've got more efficient vehicles, and they've got electric vehicles, so all of that said on top of it you have this coronavirus and in the middle of that you have shenanigans and those shenanigans begin of course with um vladimir putin and russia uh deciding to not go along with a with a supply cut um with the opec plus one and when they decided that not only were they not going to participate in a the cut they're going to provide an increase in supply to glut a market that's already glutted um of course the saudi prince uh, came back with a, well we'll show you and they, they increased their supply and now they're they've increased it again and we're we're near as i can tell jason we're at something like four million um, extra barrels of oil per day compared to where we were before the discussions of a possible supply cut so we really have a a very bad market situation right now a very bad price situation in the oil markets and i don't have to tell you what that means to places like the bakken really all the shale plays are are hurting badly as a result of this it's not just a price slump but a really a price
0: collapse that was the one thing that really i guess is not lost on me with the whole coronavirus is that the just the reaction of the masses of people i mean when I mean, you're talking about behaviors of individuals acting in large numbers, people staying from home, canceling of live events. You know, these are masses of people that are so large. It is almost like, you know, shenanigans where Russia and Saudi Arabia can decide they're going to pull some uh, barrels of oil off or on the market. Do you know what I mean? Because they have the power of a country to do something like that, whereas... The coronavirus really did change enough behaviors to impact the marketplace. That's incredible to me based on yeah. those other things you said, too, that the energy industry already had a one-two punch. And Senator Kramer, I want to transition into a third punch or a fourth punch, if you will, and that's the rise of environmentalism. So many pipeline projects and so many refineries and different energy projects out there are are getting hemorrhaged. Uh, financially by the rise of the environmentalist and eco-law and eco-justice, if you will. Talk to me a little bit about just what's going on from from your neck of the woods in the halls of Congress when it comes with uh, the the rise of, I call it the cult of environmentalism.
1: Well, it certainly is an extreme version of of environmentalism that's really rooted more in you know, political liberalism than it is in, in concern for the environment because if you really cared about the environment you'd want more pipelines because they, that's the most environmentally safe way to move a product that is in high demand while it's a shrinking demand right now it's ultimately in high demand and we have to have it i mean uh, and i don't need to go into all the, the details of that un, unless you want to jason but you raise an important point because this is splashing over not just from not just into. Uh, You know, protests of of permits or, you know, protesting literally at construction sites. Those things, um, you know, are, are inconveniences and those things can certainly delay important projects. But now they've gotten into the banking community. Now I serve on the banking right. committee. So I, on the one hand, I serve on the Environment and Public Works Committee yeah, that, that oversees some of the regulatory side of things. Um, and then I also serve on the banking committee, which oversees the financial side of things. Well, now they've convinced large banks, I mean, you know, the, some of the biggest names that you and I know of, and they've intimidated them into pulling back on lending and and investing in these fossil projects well you know you cut off large uh, access to to large amounts of money Uh, these are highly capital uh, intensive projects obviously um and you know that this is another way around or another way to attack the the entire industry so that I've, i've gotten very involved in in going after the banks that have acquiesced to this bullying, um, I don't believe that banks who are insured by the federal government—that is to say, the taxpayers of this country—ought um, to be making decisions to, to to deny credit to legal companies that are in good standing and, and have every right and reason and frankly responsibility to uh, to build out. Um, but we're seeing a lot of a lot of capex being cut now as a result of these low prices in in North Dakota and throughout the country. I think you're going to, you know, I've had enough personal conversations with with uh, company CEOs to know what's you know th- th- that there's going to be a real serious pullback, and some of it has not been announced yet. So I'm not going to. But um, but yeah, the, the the environmental movement is is alive, it's well, and it's vicious right now. Well, and, uh, it... we
0: need to stand up for for commerce it's really something else because when you when you look at the energy industry um they're going through a change and and i'm going to talk about that in just a second but the environmental side of things i I want to say the last two or three major conferences that had to deal with climate change from the un whatever the last one was last week it's not the scientists and their verified data that's getting the headlines it's a 16 year old girl and the energy industry has spent billions of dollars trying to educate and promote and do PR, and they're getting the crap kicked out of them by a 16-year-old girl.
1: Well, that's because our media loves that.
0: They I love know. that sort of
1: activism. They love that level of, of emotion, and it doesn't have to be practical. It doesn't even have to be true. It just ha- just has to be sort of romantic or sexy. and. And they run with it, and it's become very irresponsible, Jason. That's why why forms like what you provide, the type of formats you provide on the radio show, on the podcast, um, in print, I mean, it's really important that a more balanced view gets out there because it's more educational rather than emotional. And unfortunately, even our large financial institutions can fall for that, and certainly our large media.
0: For it. Well, and we've been trying to explain that for a while now that this this rise of environmentalism is real and it is impacting the legal system and it's impacting the banking system to where, l- like you said, now that E, was it ESMP, ESG, there's two different acronyms, whether you're a company and, and, and whether you're a specific organization, but you do, you, you're having to get certified now that you're environmentally conscious. So that part of the industry is changing is, is how we get banking. I've been saying this for probably the last three, four years, Senator Kramer, that um, CEOs like Harold Hamm have been on the show. Back in 2012, 13, and, and, and beginning of 14, when it was $100 oil, boy, we could get the CEOs no problem. Now it's like a rare albino albino elk sighting, man. They're just, they're hard to get to nowadays. But uh, what, what they would say in a program like this is the paradigm shift and i'd always i'd always say that ceos they're not like news pundits and and political pundits they don't exaggerate and be bombastic when they say something they mean it because they got shareholders listening they got attorneys right. listening That's right. you know and so yeah. when when they say that you you start thinking well what do they mean by paradigm shift well okay big data has really changed the wellhead it's really changed automation it's really even changed human resources you know like take something like a background check from Alaska to Wyoming you know that used to take a month now it's a second you know so that's a paradigm shift okay we mentioned the PR they've got to reinvent their public relations and engagement because they're losing to you know emotion over fact so we've got to figure out that but then you started looking at the bailout Boy, if the energy industry took a bailout, that would be a major change because the initial knee-jerk reaction was no. You know, Mike Summers from API came out and said no right away. Uh, Senator Kramer, you, you know that this is a tough subject right now because of all the things we just talked about from OPEC to Corona to oil prices that... You know, when you start mentioning bailouts and things like that with the energy industry, boy, that would be a big change if the energy industry took a bailout, but I don't know. I'm not sure what to even think on this one.
1: Yeah, so it's, it's very interesting, and you're right, Mike has come out uh, against the bailouts. As is APX, they, they represent sort of um, mid-size and, and, and up. Um, companies, uh, Independent Producers Association of America, they've said the same thing. Um, DEPA is, is another organization that's once headed up by Harold Hamm. None of them are asking for a bailout. Uh, you know, there, there are various, various things that we're hearing from, from them, what they'd like. One of the major things is, and we've been talking about capital and access to capital and CapEx, um, at a time when, when the price is $30, the, the one thing that is happening, of course, is that interest rates have come down to where money's very cheap. At least, you know, credit is very cheap. And, um, and it's probably coming down even further. I think access to liquidity, um, is, is a pretty big piece of it that, that, that I think helps the industry a lot. Um, the good news is that they've been on a pretty good run, although prices you know, recently have been, have been low. Um, you know, they, they've been in a, they've been in a pretty good spot. Um, Harold and, and and the folks at DEPA are looking for a po- possible investigation into anti-dumping you know and anti-dumping laws by mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. and I think that's relevant it's certainly worth looking at and they ought to be aware of it because I think it does fit I think the, you know the, the the documents that I've looked at the history of of anti-dumping and how it's been applied um, it makes sense um, but even that is not natural for the oil man because the oil man likes free open global markets and we are the stabilizer in those markets but when you have big market players like um saudi arabia in in russia manipulating the markets the way they are i think the, I think they have a case to be made and that they should be reined in on the other hand um and, and by the way I, I also think that i do think there's some diplomatic things happening that hopefully will be successful along those lines i i signed a letter yesterday that dan sullivan dan from um dan is from alaska he and i Put together a letter to the crown prince saudi arabia saying knock it off um you know we are your ally we've been your ally we've defended you when it wasn't easy to defend you and you ought not be dancing with vladimir putin you better get your act together. You. so we we put it on them pretty heavy and got a number of other senders uh, to sign it and, and i think there's you know i think there's some movement taking place but you can't keep the pressure off either um but other i think other some of the other organizations other uh, other companies they they, they would of course they want a, a resolution to the to the price war between the two big uh, the two big producing countries but they also um, you know they're looking for capital and and uh, I think we can do some things to free up more capital and some of that we can do in the regulatory side as well Jason we you know we often talk about low interest through loans you know what can the Federal Reserve do to, to you know to provide more liquidity to the banks I think they're, they're doing that I think you're going to see interest rates at or near zero next by next week. Um, and um, all of that will have some certainly some stimulating uh, benefit. But, you know, maybe maybe there are some things on the regulatory side as well to, to draw down some of the costs, the, the unnecessary costs of whether it's pipelines or drilling itself or, frankly, banking itself. Um, you know, we have a great distribution system of banks in this country. It doesn't have to be the federal government. Um, that's providing the money, but, but some of the regulations prevent these banks who, by the way, have lots of cash. The they, they banks themselves are fairly li- liquid because, um, they've been required to be, uh, as a result of, you know, former uh, legislation.
0: That's what I always try to tell people is that even during a recession, there's still a lot of money out there. It's just more centralized and you got to go find it. And you just got to build a better mousetrap or have a better steak sandwich at the end of the day. I mean, the money's still out there. You just got to go get it. And yeah. you know, the, the conversation though about a bailout or not to me was just, it was so interesting. And then the quick reaction back, like, you know, it was almost like offensive, you know, like we, they were offended right. that even the thought was there, but the, the, nevertheless, the conversation is being had. Another conversation I, I do want to ask you about, if you have time, is something that we've been pontificating here a little bit about, a little bit for fun, because we try to be more non-political and get more to more of the facts and the issues and that sort of thing. But uh, is you know the flaring issue? You know, it's obviously it's it's not only is it a problem, but it's it's easily easy to point a finger at it because you can see it and you can take pictures of it and right. people don't like right. it. So, right. you know, it's, it's really even not that dirty, but it's just, it's, it's, it's easy to point a finger at. So uh, we started saying, you know, let's say, well, let's just take a look at wind and solar energy. Okay. They've gotten subsidies for 30 years and they've, they've put milestones out there and they haven't really hit any of the milestones and wind, wind energy is still not affordable. Um, it's not reliable. And anything, cell phones, cell phone, I'm sorry, uh, uh, solar energy, still not reliable and affordable either. And it's, it's not a bash on the industry. It's just where it's at. And they've gotten 30 years of subsidies. So I've often asked the question, what if we shifted some of those subsidies over to natural gas? So maybe these crazy clever scientists that are sitting out and sleeping at well sites, checking monitors, can help solve that flaring issue. Maybe we get some new super plastic at the end of the day or some new super feedstock, who knows. But my point is is that if they were subsidized they might be able to solve that flaring issue. And then, of course, the industry gets upset because the word subsidy comes out. Well, now I see that somebody in the halls of Congress is starting to talk about a natural gas tax. So I'm going, okay, we should go back to the subsidy shift now. Um, Talk to me a little bit about that whole thing when it comes to is that anything that you know that you could even look at as a is a shift of subsidies to to help that flaring problem? Because that that is truly a solvable problem in the next five to ten years.
1: Well, we, we know it is. I mean, the the biggest challenge we have, of course, in North Dakota is that it, it's it's a byproduct of the oil itself, and the oil comes out rather easily and rather quickly, and there is an existing infrastructure for a lot of that. It is the uh, it's the expense and the permitting and you know, the, the time lag for building out the gathering and transmission and even processing, of course, of the natural gas. That said, you make a lot of important points that the fact that we can see the flaring makes it difficult. The fact that we live in a cold climate and see flaring makes it downright immoral because we think of <laughs> what it costs to, to warm a home. Now, natural gas is so abundant it's darn near free. And I, and I know that sounds crazy, but it's so low cost. The commodity is priced so cheaply because of, because of the abundance of it, that to me, there are natural, there should be natural market forces that provide the opportunity and the, the appropriate incentives to capture, gather and and process that gas. And you've seen a lot of it in North Dakota. It's just that it's, it lags behind the the oil side of the, the factor. Now, I hate to get back to coronavirus, but what we're experiencing right now in this state, as a result of this this price crash in oil, you're going to unfortunately see a slowdown in the build-out of natural gas infrastructure. Whether that's, uh, you, you, as you probably know, I mean, there there were some large, um, there are some large uh, plans for natural gas processing facilities in the state th- this summer. Um, I don't know anything yet but I'm, I'm watching reading the tea leaves and I'm very concerned that some of the infrastructure that would have provided some of the relief and not just relief for the flaring, but now use for the natural gas, whether it's processing and sending down the line or sending down the line wet to, uh, to other processing facilities or, you know at some point maybe some sort of a hydrocarbon or, or you know plastics facility all of those things are going to have great setbacks now as a result of price your question however is about subsidizing it i think there are other ways to do it than subsidizing i I think that there are we should help incent the appropriate market forces for example i met a couple of weeks ago in my office uh, with somebody who's actually become a bit of an international friend i think i've met with him three times now but um it is the uh the energy minister from poland they would love to buy our natural gas rather than, than Russia's. Um, we have big things. They, they remember when, when Donald Trump uh, took so much criticism for suggesting to Angela Merkel that she should um, you know, change her views on the Nord Stream 2 uh, pipeline uh, and, and help rather facilitate the, the build out of a, of a pipeline infrastructure in Europe that carries American gas. Um, there's a lot of demand globally for what we produce here in the United States. The other thing, and you raised with the issue of subsidies, is, is electric generation. You talked about the intermittency of, of, uh, of wind and solar, the, the lack of reliability to it on the grid. The fact that we have utilities in, in North Dakota, Thailand, you know, more about abandoning large efficient coal plants because it's so cheap to do wind and solar and, and natural gas. Well guess what we just happen to produce a lot of natural gas in 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 north dakota as well and we happen to have a lot of electric infrastructure but um you know we we need to find ways to use that gas because it's a precious commodity even though it's a low cost commodity right now um but the best way to um you know to get a better return on your dollar is is to um you know, to use more of it and, you know, demand creates, uh, you know, creates price. So, um, I, as you can tell, I'm sort of, I'm sort of lukewarm at best to the idea of subsidizing things, but we can, I think there are some more natural market forces that we can help it set.
0: No, I agree. I'm not a, listen, I'm a, yeah, You know, here's a little insight on me. I helped start the teenage Republicans in my high school and, you know, so I mean, to, to, to the core, but I'm I'm one of those old school, like, I guess they call them, was it Goldwater kind of guys, government yeah, stay out no, of my checkbook, like, yeah. government stay out of my, you know, personal life, but hey, I'll help you build the roads. You know, we we yeah, want some, right. we want some authority figures around to keep the riffraff right. out, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, why, again, the subsidies, I hate even saying that word, but then again, at the same time, I'm going... I I'd, I'd rather see, you know, subsidies go into keeping the pipelines being built and keeping some of the flow going as, as so that Russia and Saudi Arabia and the coronavirus don't stop doesn't stop it in America when you know we are really close to energy independence whenever we want to be. No, uh, we, no yeah, when we want to be is a different story, but um, so uh, just kind of wrapping up here you go point ahead. Point.
1: I want to just add to that point. You're, you're making a really important point right here. Even if we're not, if, if we aren't um, on the books, independent, we, we we're capable of independence, and that's what makes us independent. And if if uh, this is why uh, it's something like what what Deppa is talking about in terms of a, a an anti-dumping uh, investigation or perhaps action with countervailing um, with countervailing uh, tariffs is is a threat worth putting out there because. We are capable of independence. We're capable of dominance, as the president has, has mentioned. And the only thing keeping us from doing that is that you know is that we're part of a global market. But if the global market is not going to be fair to us, we can become independent real fast. And we are the consumers in this world. But we want to be able to sell our product as much as anything and uh, and use it for good around the world. Because natural gas and oil, uh, I'd say natural gas in particular right now, is is a is a national security tool as opposed to a national security weapon, and that's why we should be looking for more ways to streamline the permitting process for gathering lines, transmission lines, export terminals, uh, and then working with our, our trading partners around the world to work with us on, on, ex, on import terminals and their own infrastructure so they don't have to be beholden to Vladimir Putin for their natural gas supply.
0: Winding down here with Senator Kevin Kramer. Appreciate the overtime here today. And you mentioned Harold Hamm's name, and I did want to ask you about... Uh, Harold ham who you know on a, not only a personal level but he's helped you on I think your campaign even a little bit I think even <laughs> oh I was gonna say I think he even shook a few hands on your behalf but being your finance <laughs> chairman well that's a little better so <laughs> um, well, you know it takes both hands and money <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right they wash each other too I guess but uh, that's a different <laughs> saying for a different day uh, Harold ham just recently got an honorary doctorate at uh, University of North Dakota of course being from a different state that means He's done some incredible things for not only the university, but the state. And I do want to mention, too, before I let you talk a little bit about Harold Hamm, because you know him, like I say, on a personal and professional level, but we've had a lot of CEOs come and go in North Dakota from out of state. You know, we 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 are a very big agriculture uh, community. We're a very big oil community as well. We're a big tech community with uh, Governor Burgum and Bill Gates Connections. And to get an honorary doctorate like something like this shows that Harold Hamm is not only, you know, somebody who's done a lot of business with the state, but he's spent a lot of time getting to know the state. And he's done it in almost a maverick kind of way. You know, he really has. And that really has appealed to the people of North Dakota. So I just thought I'd start with that.
1: Well, you, you have really um, characterized Harold in, in, a, in an appropriate way. Jason. I think part of why we relate so well to Harold isn't just because of his generosity or just because of the incredible investment he's made in this state. But he's a he's even a pioneer in, in terms of our state. Because when it comes to the combination of of hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling, it is Harold who is credited with cracking that code. And and when he did crack that code, he just happened to have about a million um mineral acres <laughs> right here in our state and so he's made major investment here he is while he still has an oklahoma accent and a home in oklahoma he is a corporate citizen of north dakota and so in many respects he's he's appropriately you know considered the the godfather of at least of the the Bakken shale play now i also have to say harold the, the other part of why we like harold is he's a lot like us you know he, he's been referred to as the blue-collar billionaire um, because Harold's really more comfortable, uh, in, you know, in hunting clothing than he is in a, in a suit, although he's become pretty good at wearing the suit and, you know, we see him a lot on the, uh, on the, the business shows on CNBC and Fox business and Bloomberg TV. And, uh, he, t- he has to talk to the street, you know, you, you know, you were, talking about that a little bit earlier that ceos always have to sort of maintain a certain tone when they're talking because there are people on wall street listening at all times and it's you know credit rating agencies investors and you know the institutional investors but but harold's also an independent so and i think it's important to know you know to remember that he's he's really an independent not just literally but in his heart and so he's a lot like a North Dakotan. And uh, if you're to bump into Harold at the coffee shop, you could be talking to a rancher or a farmer or a mechanic, a geologist, or uh, you know an, an oil tycoon. You never know for sure. And um, so, so we just relate to him. But he has also he's also invested significantly in the charities of our of our state and our education system and and, and sometimes in big flashy ways and then some sometimes the ways that I'm familiar with when it's not so big and flashy but more anonymous and and personal now I, I would say he follows a lot of others like him I mean I think of somebody like John Hess who I had a good visit with this earlier this year we think about it, the the legacy of of Western North Dakota and oil and gas exploration and recovery and processing. I mean, Hess is really the, you know, Hess is really the, the legacy company for North Dakota. So, so, and his name remains on the, uh, you know, on the, on the buildings, but, but Harold's special in that he's really made North Dakota, uh, uh, not just a second home, but I'd almost say just another home. It's really his, it's almost equal to his, uh, to his roots in, in Oklahoma.
0: Thank you, Senator. Senator. Appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. Thanks, Jason.